Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 269 of the podcast. It's December 7th, 2016. Joining me today are Brian McNeese and James Bowen. They are co-authors of the recently released book, Powerhouse, Insider Accounts into the World's Top High Performance Organizations. Brian and James are the founders of the international consultancy Kotonos Partners. And in this episode, we talk about the book and then we take a deeper dive into two of the organizations they profiled, Toyota and Mayo Clinic. I think it's always interesting to see what people outside our, if you will, lean community see when they study Toyota. So they describe, I think correctly, how, quote, continuous improvement is at the heart of Toyota's high performance model. And uh, since I'm committed to healthcare improvement, I'm also always curious to learn lessons from organizations like the world-renowned Mayo Clinic. The authors write about a key driver of Mayo Clinic's success being its, quote, commitment to collaborative medicine. So I hope you enjoy the episode. If you'd like to learn more about the book, um, the frameworks uh, for high-performance organizations that they talk about here in the podcast, you can go to leanblog.org slash 269 or you can visit the author's website for the book Powerhouse at www.theperformancepowerhouse.com. Well, Brian and James, thank you for being guests on the podcast uh, today to talk about your book Powerhouse. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Mark. We appreciate it. So I was wondering if you could each, you know, before we delve into the book, um, can you know introduce yourselves, each of you, kind of talk about your careers and backgrounds, and, and I guess at some point that reaches a point of, of the two of you working together and, and the work you do today. Sure. Uh, happy to, Mark. Uh, maybe I'll go first. I'm James Bowen, and with Brian, I'm one of the authors of the, the Powerhouse book. Um, my background is engineering and business, I guess. I have an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering, um, from which I graduated from University College Dublin and had a career for several years working in operational areas with manufacturing companies, particularly in the paper industry. Um, I subsequently did an MBA in Switzerland and I've been working as a consultant now for almost 20 years. Um, my road into consulting was strategy and my interest, kind of original interest was strategy, but over time I guess I've diversified to take more of an interest in organization and leadership as complements to strategy and enablers collectively of driving high performance. Um, I'll let Brian maybe introduce himself now and th then he can kind of touch on how the two of us came to work together, if that's helpful. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. so um, Brian McNeese, um, I obviously work very closely with James and um, my own personal background, I, I originally started in, in IT, uh, had a computer degree out of college, um, worked in kind of major large-scale IT implementation programs for kind of about nearly a decade or so, uh, and then moved into a more general consulting environment, advisory environment. Uh, again, like James, I did an MBA uh, after after I left uh, my kind of undergraduate degree, um, did an international MBA and marketing qualification, and then started to work in more general uh, strategy and change management uh, areas around uh, uh, kind of with major consulting houses. Um, James and I came together when we were working with Arthur Anderson. Um, that's where we first met. Uh, and uh, ever since, we've collaborated um, on 
working together on projects and we set up Cotonos about seven, eight years ago now um, with a, a focus on helping drive uh, performance improvement with the client base that we work with. So kind of our, our whole ethos and area that we focus on is around really helping drive better performance in the in our clients. Right, and, and you work with clients um, throughout Ireland, throughout Europe? Correct. So we work, uh, our client base is, is global, really. So okay. our work, we, have, we have a chunk of our work which is here, but a lot of our work and probably an increasingly amount of our work is not here, as in, not in Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a practice in the US which has been growing over the last two or three years. And we also do quite a bit of work in the UK and throughout Europe. And, and our clients typically are multinationals. They're the household names that you would know. Mm -hmm. and, and also across multiple industry sectors as well. So we don't specialize in a given sector. Um, we, we kind of straddle across lots of industry sectors. Okay. And you know, speaking of recognizable names, there are a lot of um, recognizable names and organizations uh, featured in uh, the book, um, Powerhouse. So I was wondering if, if, if you could tell the story of you know how the book came to be. It's always a, a big endeavor writing a book. Uh, there, there, there had to have been, I'm sure, a certain spark and uh, inspiration for the book, if, you, if, one, if one or both of you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I guess so. The original inspiration for the book was driven out of the client work that we were doing. Uh, to be honest, Mark, we, um, we've been kind of, as I say, working with our client base and helping drive performance for quite some time. And so we've always been intrigued about what 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 is it that drives organizational performance? How do you how do you get a scenario where you have organizations or institutions that consistently outperform their peers over long periods of time? What are some of the attributes or, or uh, characteristics of those organizations that lead to that? So we've always been intrigued by that, and um, to that end, we started to, to do some primary research around that. We started to reach out to some of the organizations and institutions that we admired as being high performing. And we asked them the question, well, how do you do this? And can we come and visit you? And can we learn a little bit more about what it takes to become high performing? Um, in an effort to try and think about how we could apply that to the client work that we do. So that was the original genesis of the, of the kind of idea of researching high performing organizations and institutions. And then once we've done a, a, a bunch of that research, we said, well, why don't we codify this and write it down and, and publish it as a book? Uh, so, um, you know, so hence uh, Powerhouse came to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're, we're going to talk about um, Toyota and, and Mayo Clinic in particular, but, you know, there, there's a wide range of organizations here, uh, sports teams from the U.S. and New Zealand, educational institutions, um, arts organizations, healthcare, banks, U.S. Marine Corps. Um, how did you sort of you know take what you learned from these you know, kind of, you know wide-ranging organizations into how, how did you put that into a framework for high-performance organizations? If you sort of talk about some of the the high-level themes or the frameworks that that you've put into the book. Yeah. So I guess well. Firstly, we built, it was by design, if you like, it was deliberate that we ended up with the portfolio of research studies being as diverse as it is. We, we wanted to look, you know, across multiple sectors to try to see could we identify some common themes. And, and, and for sure we did. You know, I think that when we looked across the set of institutions, and you've, you've listed some of them there in the question mark, you know, you can see that there are, there are aspects 
there are, there are things that they have in common that underpin their performance. Firstly, you know, and there are few, just to kind of pull out a few of those, in the first instance, for the most part, all of these institutions, and, and these are institutions, again, that have been at the tops of their games for extended periods of time, they're all there because they aimed to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, none of them found themselves, if you like, at the top of the tree and looked around and went, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. In each instance, they all, they all ended up at the tops of their games explicitly as, as a result of having set that as an, as an, as an objective for themselves. Secondly, they all said as that, that that objective wasn't just to get to the top of the tree, but to stay there. Mm-hmm. I think what all of them recognized is that the way in which they stay at the top of the tree is by developing a competitive advantage that's anchored in their organization. It's anchored in the people that it, it's, it's effectively a people-centric competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they've done is they've invested to build that competitive advantage in their organization. And we've identified, you know, that that the, the the kind of the symptoms, if you like, or the indicators of that competitive advantage have kind of come out from the research, and we've called them our powerhouse principles. And we've identified twelve of them in the course of the book, you know. And just to kind of pick on a few of them, for you know, one of them, one of the kind of the core common elements of advantage that they have is ambition. We talked about it. All of them define and articulate ambition in a way that stretches, it goes beyond that which is comfortable for the organization, but in a way that is our, that captures the hearts and minds of the people who work within the organization. So it challenges and it enables and it motivates the people within an organization to perform at their best in order to achieve an end that they all want to achieve, if you like. Right. Um, Another one of our powerhouse principles is is the measures that they put with that ambition. So they, they don't just kind of define ambition in a loose way, they define it in quite a specific way. And they identified the measures, the key, the key performance indicators, if you like, that align with that ambition, that are at the core of the way in which they're going to win. So they create a scorecard that isn't just a, a holistic, a kind of a whatever you're having yourself scorecard. It's a very specific scorecard that's linked to the advantage that they want to build, that's linked to the result that they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And and even on just those points, I think you know a lot of the listeners who are familiar with the lean management methodology will will, will find a lot of that to be uh, very familiar, especially organizations that are using. Uh, you know, the, and we'll come back and, and talk more about Toyota organizations that are using. Uh, you know, Toyota strategies, not just as a process improvement or operation strategy, but really as uh, a business strategy. Those uh, those key goals, um, they're, they're not, quote unquote, implementing Toyota methods for the sake of Toyota methods. They're, they're trying to be high performing organizations. Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the process it means to an end. There's a, there's a purpose to it, if you like. Yeah. That's- that, that's that, what's common is that there's always a purpose. Obviously, the, the purpose itself is specific to the institution, and, and, and that purpose tends to run deeper. It seems in organizations like these, the, the purpose is deeper than just making money this quarter. What are your thoughts on yeah, that? For sure, you know, and kind of interestingly, you know, as I said to you, my background in in, in consultancy is strategy, mm-hmm. and. You know, I worked in for a lot of time, for a long time, working with companies on the basis that, you know, what dis- what distinguished a good strategy from a bad strategy was the creation of shareholder value, mm-hmm. and that's for sure. You know, in a business context where a business exists as a means to an economic end, most people don't get out of bed in the morning with the view to creating shareholder value. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You know, it's not enough to mobilize, in particular in a, in a large organization like any of the ones that we've studied, you know, where you have typically several thousands of people of all, you know, of a hugely diverse population. They need a tie that binds that's more meaningful and more kind of captivating than, than just the economic end. Mm -hmm. But equally, that, that purpose needs to be connected to the economic end as well. Sure. Yeah. And, and I've heard I, I know some former Toyota people who have talked exactly like you did there about having to connect with hearts and minds. It's not just enough to lay out uh, numerical goals. You've got to connect with, um, you know, kind of people's uh, passion and their, I think, intrinsic desire to want to make a difference in the world, whether that's uh, creating mobility, building cars. You know, Southwest Airlines has people who are passionate about um, you know, delivering great service in a fun environment. Um, there, there's, yeah. there's that deeper connection. I agree. Yeah, because you want you're you're trying to motivate individuals every day to come and do their best. You know, you're, yeah. and you're trying to create the environment for individuals to come and work in 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 collaboration with other individuals, but at the best at the tops of their ability. So it takes more than just you know the the, the notion of shareholder value feels like it's a very distant and very intangible. And not that meaningful as a as a kind of a sole motivator for for achieving that end. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, it's it's an end result uh, as opposed to being a primary goal. Even even Jack Welch, who I think was considered one of the kings of the shareholder value movement in recent years, has really kind of stepped back from that and uh, you know, uh, yeah. kind of evolved in, in some of his views that there's got to be a deeper sense of purpose in an organization. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Mark, actually, one, one of the things that we do with some of the clients that we work with is we have a, a kind of diagnostic process that we can go through that, that in effect tries to measure the relativity of performance pressure within any uh, team or, or, or uh, environment uh, against the strength of meaning. And what we're looking for all the time is to have a really strong sense of purpose or meaning because that's what withstands the performance pressure that gets applied. If, if meaning is, is, is weaker than the performance pressure, at some point you're going to get a negative reaction uh, where people just say, you know what, it doesn't matter that much to me. It's not just not that important to me. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really, really important. If you're driving for better performance all the time, you've got to think very, very carefully about creating a strong sense of powerful meaning for people because without that, you don't get the discretionary effort that it takes to, to deliver high performance. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And I think if the, the pressure, one thing I would add is if you know, I think the pressure is greater than the sense of purpose, you end up with people doing dysfunctional things to just hit the metric, hit the measure no matter what, even if that's not in uh, the best interest of, of the customers of the organization and their reputation over time. Exactly. But, yeah, you get one of two things. You either get that or you get you get a situation where people just disengage and just walk away. Yeah. So you know, before we talk about, you know, Toyota and Mayo, one, one other thing that occurred to me, you know, looking at the the, the, the framework, the, uh, the powerhouse performance model that you've sort of mapped each organization to, um, you know, we talk about plan and priorities, people and process. There's, I, I think... Um, a parallel there, a lot of listeners may be familiar with the Lean Enterprise Institute and uh, Jim Womack and you know the, the framework that Womack has talked about really has three pieces, purpose, people, and process. And it seems like you know, the, way, the way you're framing it in the book, plan and priorities, um, you know, that, that sort of combines into that idea of, of purpose 
um, you know, people-centric organizations, um, not just uh, you know having the, the having well-designed processes that this all fits together. And I imagine all of the organizations that you profiled um, have have strengths in in all of these areas, or uh, how, how could you generalize maybe within yes. that framework? So I guess our, our powerhouse model is more of a how model, if you like. Mm -hmm. So the, the principles in some respects are some of the what's that we observed as kind of mm -hmm. existing within the organizations that we studied. Mm -hmm. The powerhouse model is more of a, okay, well, okay, if, this is, if, if, if the principles give me a sense for what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to achieve at the end, well, then how do I get there? Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's about working within, you're right, there are absolutely parallels with the, with the lean enterprise models. But for you know our model, I guess it takes takes the idea of pur purpose that you articulated there from Womack and breaks it down into two areas: the plan and priorities. And plan and priorities for us are about making sure that we have direction, we have purpose, but we have, you know, we have direction that go, that that includes but goes beyond purpose. It captures the ambition, it captures the the, the definition of of that success, and so on and so forth. And the priorities bit is about making sure that we have the ability to convert that direction into work. Mm -hmm. One of my strategy professors, you know, one of his lines at the time when we were learning about this stuff was he said, the problem with strategy is that ultimately it disintegrates into work. <laughs> right. And so what we try to do by having the priorities pillar there is to make sure that that disintegration is a managed proactive thing as opposed to a reactive, you know, more random disintegration. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, the work, that's the that's the. The hard stuff, but I think one of the challenges with strategy is organizations have all sorts of ideas, but without proper prioritization or, or focus. Um, I, I think people, organizations find themselves stretched too thin, and and they don't really accomplish any any of those goals. So I mean, I think there's there's a parallel to to what people from uh, Toyota or other organizations would call a strategy deployment process. It's, it's not just about having the right strategy and the right measures, but having that discussion within the organization about how do we really set priorities? What are the most important things to do instead of having a, you know, a laundry list of hundreds of, of so-called top priorities? Yeah, exactly. And it's more, it's, it's, it's a more and more difficult thing to do as organizations, um, particularly business organizations become more kind of matrixed. Mm -hmm. It's a more difficult thing to do to keep track of well, what's you know across the functions, across the matrix, what's most important? Yeah. At the level of the organization, what are the what are the main needles, if you like, that we're trying to move, and yeah. why? Mm -hmm. And so it's really you know the priorities pillar, if you like, is there to make sure that that level that that, that that's a task that happens, and that that level of cl of clarity around what's important organization wide for us to achieve. Mm -hmm. In order to achieve our vision, you know, is, is, is clear and is, is specified. Well, so J James, let's take a little bit deeper dive into um, your study of Toyota. Um, and what did you learn from from visiting them and, and studying them? How would you frame their success, um, you know, in in, the, in your uh, in your framework and the, the the different themes that you discovered? Yeah. So. I guess as somebody who does a lot of work um, with manufacturing companies and who's got a manufacturing background, you know, Toyota is, it, it, it's, there's an element of pilgrimage, if you like, associated with going to visit Toyota and trying to understand how they how they do things. You know, there's no, there's no question but that they are a kind of an exemplar and a pioneer in the development of high performance in a manufacturing context. Right. 
So it was in that spirit, I guess, that we put Toyota on our list of, of institutions to study and equally in that spirit that, that we went to go to visit them in Japan. Um, so, you know, it was it was fantastic and a really enlightening visit. You know, in, in particular, I went I went to Toyota HQ, but I also went to one of the manufacturing facilities in Motomachi, which is actually one of their older mm-hmm. facilities in Japan, um, but no less kind of interesting and inspiring for all of that. Um, in terms of what I saw in Toyota, a lot of what I saw reinforced a lot of what I had read. You know, Toyota is a well-studied kind of case, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know, a lot of there's been a lot of research on it over the years, and a lot of what we saw reinforced it. But for us, there were three or four points that came through. You know, when 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 we stood back and we said, well, what what do we think it is that makes Toyota tick? If you like, that underpins its performance and its excellence. For us, we pulled out three or four things that were critical to that. In the first instance, again, Toyota was a good example of, of a company that's at the top of its game because it aimed to be there. You know, going right back to to the earliest stages in the in you know when when its investment in in lean manufacturing and so on started, you know, Toyota said we want to be the best in our game. We want to break through and we want to kind of pull ourselves out from being a, a kind of a a Me Too manufacturer to be a real exemplar in the world. And it, and it did that, and it continued to do that. It did it again when it, when it um, launched on the initiative to create Lexus. It said, we want to create the best passenger car, you know, and, and the one that's at the top of its game, the one that drives customer satisfaction. It's continued to do that ever, you know, now, and Toyota's vision statement for us is kind of pretty much an exemplar among kind of vision statements of organizations that we've looked at mm-hmm. when it talks about wanting to having an ambition to lead the way to a future of mobility enriching the lives around the world with the safest and most responsible ways of moving people that for us captures you know and, and the words are really important because the words really capture a level of ambition that's different but the spirit of it's really important as well because when we went to toyota what we saw was that this vision statement was something that was lived so it's on the wall and it's it's on the wall in the sites. The people, the employees at all levels within Toyota understand what the vision statement is and think about well, what does that mean for me? Right. In the, in the context of what I'm doing, you know, whether I'm an engineer or whether I'm an operator working on the site or whether I'm, you know, in the administrative part of the business or whatever, wherever it might be, they've all taken that vision statement on board and tried to figure out well, what, you know, how do I own this and how do I engage with this? Mm-hmm. And what challenge, if you like, is that vision statement setting out for me as an individual within this organization? Yeah. And it seems like, you know, the, the important thing is that that vision statement is not just something on a website or a bunch of posters on the wall. What, what did you see, you know, going into the next theme of, of Toyota taking vision, ambition, challenge and turning that into uh, performance through, as as you point out in the book, uh, would probably be no surprise to the listeners who have a background in this, uh, the idea of problem solving and, and how that's important to Toyota. Well, obviously, you know, the thing about a vision statement, obviously, is it's a statement of aspiration of where I want to be as opposed to necessarily where I am. So a consequence of having a vision statement is that you have a gap between where you are and where you want to be. And what we observed in Toyota was people, people effectively taking that gap and treating it as a problem that needed to be solved and, and starting to get into a problem-solving process that allowed them to bridge the, bridge the gap. 
And you're, and you're, you're talking strategic organizational gaps, not just detailed problem solving down on the factory floor level, right? No, exactly. So taking, you know, if we, if we, you know, and then a, a real example that we saw there was part of this vision statement is to create a world of, um, of zero accidents, right? Big ambition. Yeah. Which is a huge ambition. Absolutely. But you take that as a problem, you know, you treat that as a problem to be solved and then you start to get into it and you say, well, what are the sources of accidents? And you break that down and you start to understand, well, some of those problems are driver errors, some of them are car errors, you know, and we, and we systematically say, well, okay, so within driver error, what are the key sources of accidents within that? And how can we mitigate those accidents by building technologies into the car, for example, technologies to keep the cars in lane, technologies that help drivers to park their cars more safely or more effectively. Technologies that are early warning, you know, other early warning technologies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with the problem, you know, the, the, the challenge, the ambition has created the problem. And then what we saw in Toyota was people taking on that problem in a systematic way and breaking it down into chunks and addressing the chunks piece by piece by piece so that over time you build a solution. And, you know, high performance in Toyota is a very, is, is the sum of lots of different small moves. So maybe, uh, James, as a final point on Toyota, what, what were some of the uh, discoveries you made or, or thoughts around, um, you know, what you frame, not just continuous improvement, but dy dynamic, broad-based continuous improvement with teams of people driving performance? What were some of the dynamics that, that you saw as being, you know, unique and noteworthy within Toyota? Well, th this is a really interesting one, and for me, the, the and this is one of the biggest insights that we got from the whole from the whole um, from the whole exercise. Actually, was the was the way in which Toyota addresses the challenge, the the, the, the kind of comp what looked like competing challenges of continuous improvement and standardization. Mm -hmm. So again, as somebody who spends a lot of his time in the manufacturing environments and working with manufacturing companies, standardization is a huge deal. You know, and there are lots of good reasons why manufacturing companies want to standardize their approaches to the manufacturing process. It allows that they do they want to do it to take out costs, they want to do it to eliminate risk and so on and so forth. But there's a trade-off there, you know, and especially across a big corporation, you know, as if at least there's a tension or as a challenge there about how do we manage standardization but but still keep up a pace of improvement. So the interesting, the, the insight, I guess, that we saw from Toyota is that the way in which they use standardization and continuous improvement together is about driving their change control processes. So they standard, the standards are the standards in Toyota until we change the standards. But we can change the standards quite quickly and we change the standards a lot. So standards don't get in the way of driving improvement, which in lots of the companies that we work with, standards do get in the way of driving improvement. Yeah. Or people think of those standards as being permanent or fixed yeah. instead of being just sort of today's best known temporary standard, which maybe that sounds counterintuitive. What do you mean a temporary standard? Well, it's a standard and you know people choose to set standards, people can choose to improve them. But I guess this, this gets more difficult as an organization becomes larger, broader, multiple sites. How do you keep continuous improvement from devolving into chaos, I, I think is a concern that people express. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so even even though most companies don't go into standardization with a view to having standards be permanent, practically speaking, often that's what happens because they don't think about, well, how am I going to keep my standards fluid? 
you know, and I've had situations where companies and corporations have been rolling out standard approaches and then, you know, people come along in particular parts of the organizations, in particular in the higher performing sites with ideas and initiatives that improve the standards. They go to the guys who own the standards only to be pushed back and told, look, I can't deal with this right now. So I'm still, I'm still in the mode where I'm rolling out, you know, rev one of the standards across all of the sites. When I've done that, I'll come back and I'll take your initiative and your new idea. And so what we find in those situations is that standardization happens, but you end up standardizing to a level of performance and a level of capability that's, that's, that's at the average rather than at the top. And what we saw in Toyota was a model of they can manage standardization and continuous improvement in parallel by making sure that, that change control processes are really fluid and really fast. Mm -hmm. And so Toyota has the capability and capacity to make sure that the standard always always reflects best practice. And, yeah. and, and standardization in Toyota is a way to make sure that everybody's operating at the tops of their games at best practice levels. And that that best the frontier, if you like, of what best practice is, is being pushed out outwards all the time. Right. And that is really powerful. That's you know that that's one of the reasons. That's one of the core reasons, if you like, why Toyota, as a manufacturing institution, is as effective and as differentiated as it is. Mm -hmm. And it's also yeah. a theme that was repeated when we visited Mayo Clinic. Right. So we saw exactly the same. Um, principle in play uh, in, in a very, very different environment in, in, in the Mayo Clinic. So, so it's really interesting when you go to work with a manufacturing company and they say, well, we want to implement standardization. And my first question is, okay, then, so how are you going to do change control? Mm -hmm. And they look at me like I've got, <laughs> they're like, you, you, you weren't listening. And I'm so, I was totally listening. You know, we need to understand <laughs> first, if we really want to do standardization and use standardization as a way to deliver best top performance across the scope of our institution, then we really need to think about how are we going to do change control mm -hmm. and change propagation. How do we make sure that if I have a good idea in one part of the network that we can make people in other parts of the network aware and give them the capacity to absorb that idea and kind of incorporate it into what they do as quickly and as effectively as possible. Right. And Toyota does that in lots of different ways. You know, it, it drives awareness. It over-invests in lots of processes as people sitting in the room when meetings are taking place and when, you know, visiting sites and so on. It's, it's an over-investment to make sure that people are aware of what's going on around the network. Mm -hmm. And then their change control processes are geared up so that they can absorb and they can take in some of the, the fruits of that awareness into what they do to drive performance. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and Brian, let's let's delve a little bit deeper into uh, Mayo Clinic and, and maybe what some of the similarities are, what some of the differences were. I mean, Mayo, you, you went to Rochester, Minnesota. Mayo is increasingly uh, a network of, of different sites and organizations around the U.S. If not, uh, I don't know if they've gone to the Middle East like a lot of health systems have. But what, what were some of the, the key things that stood out to you? Mayo Clinic has such a, a reputation for um, clinical excellence um, and, and people travel there for that. What, what else did you learn about um, some of the key themes that lead uh, to high performance uh, maybe in, in, in other ways or as an overall organization? Yeah, I guess so just to pick up on, on the thread of discussion from Toyota, um, one of the things that we learned in Mayo was this notion of, of a very rapid diffusion of best practice uh, across the different uh, disciplines within Mayo. 
and across the different sites that they're now operating in as well. So typically in healthcare, it takes anything up to nearly seven years for new methods and practices to be adopted consistently. And, and Mayo recognized that as, as an issue and a problem and said, how do we accelerate this process? Um, and, and how do we make sure that the process takes no longer than six months? Mm. Um, so they've developed their, their, what they call the Mayo Clinic model of diffusion. Um, and really it's designed to ensure that bre- best practice thinking uh, becomes the standard in within a six month period. And, and it uses a combination of systems engineering in order to, first of all, figure out, well, what, what does best practice look like and how do we kind of, you know, adapt our processes and our, our systems uh, accordingly. Um, it has some infrastructure support around leadership, around the use, smart use of IT, uh, around education and measurement in order to ensure that the kind of core infrastructure is there to be able to roll out best practice in a, in a in a very kind of rapid way. Um, and then it also focuses very much on, on culture. And I think one of the things that struck us very strongly when we visited Mayo was just how how strong the underlying culture is um, and, and how it has survived generation after generation of leader within the Mayo Clinic. So the history of the Mayo Clinic was it was set up by uh, it's a kind of effectively was a, a family business really uh, initially set up by the Mayos and, and the two Mayo brothers in particular drove drove that for quite some time and had some very, very strong views and opinions about what an integrated healthcare practice should look like and how uh, in, in particular the notion of collaborative medicine was something that was very, very important to them. Um, and that has that has survived in its kind of 150 year plus history, that that underlying culture and the core values that were established right from the outset have, have survived and thrived, um, and for me are kind of part of the reason why it's become a high-performing organization and institution in the way it has today. Well, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, rapid diffusion, um, seven years being a uh, a benchmark. I mean, I've, I've heard some in healthcare say that it's almost 20 years uh, for the really widespread adoption of new approaches, new technologies. Um, even going back to, um, I, I uncovered in some research for for a book that it was almost 20 years that passed from the initial proposal of the idea that surgeons shouldn't go searching for their own instruments, that they should, you know, it's sort of a cliche of, you know, doctor says scalpel and they put their hand out and the scalpel appears in their hand. You know, that was proposed uh, by industrial engineers and it took 19 years for the American Medical Association to to say that, yeah, that was a, a best practice that everybody should embrace. So that there is slow going um, in, in healthcare. Um, I think there's, you know, interesting parallel in, in your chapter on Toyota, you talk about the idea of yokaten, or you know, the Japanese word for basically for spreading ideas through the organization. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, or it seems like maybe there's some things Toyota can learn from Mayo in that regard. Yeah, and, and, and there again, that's something that I found very interesting with Mayo. They have a very outward looking focus. So when they're trying to figure out how do we improve any element of what we do, they look around the world and say, who's the best at this? So they've already studied Toyota. They've already studied lean processes and how they can apply those to eliminate waste. When it comes to 
queuing times for patients when they're checking in, you know, uh, registering when, when they arrive first. They've looked to Disney and to some of the more efficient airlines and said, how do they manage their queuing systems and how, how can we adapt practices that they have in order to make sure that our patient experience reflects that of, of best in class when it comes to queuing systems? Um, you know, again, there, there, there are other examples um, where they looked at the insurance industry, for example, back in the 1940s, who were very efficient at managing uh, customer records and kind of the administration around those. And, and so they, they looked at that and said, OK, how do, how do we make sure our administrative practices are as efficient as possible. So, so they have a very strong outward focus um, and are always looking at what's best in class and how can we bring that in. Um, and yes, I'm sure Toyota and lots of other organizations could, could learn a hell of a lot from, from going and, and visiting Mayo, particularly in my view, around the whole collaborative teamwork approach that is an underlying philosophy that permeates everything that happens at, at Mayo. Well, and I, th I think healthcare organizations out there are trying to learn from both Toyota and Mayo. And I think it'd be interesting to see how different health systems kind of synthesize the different learnings from uh, from these organizations. There, I think there's some common themes, but some unique strengths. And you know, you talk about the strong culture at Mayo. I imagine the core of that culture doesn't change because let's say if Mayo is adopting lean principles and learning from Toyota, they can, um, you know, they're, they're not going to throw out their old culture uh, altogether. It seems like organizations, you know, never do that, even if they, they don't feel like they have uh, a good culture. What kind can, of can curious, what, what are some, some of your thoughts on that of, of combining cultures and, and building upon strengths perhaps? Yeah. So I think there are, there are some kind of really strong, anchor points uh, within the culture in Mayo. And again, this is something that we see repeated in other high-performing or organizations and institutions. So, so number one anchor point undoubtedly for Mayo is just the simple philosophy that the needs of the patient come first. Um, the needs of the patient trump absolutely everything. And, and so our, our sole purpose is, is here to serve patient need. Um, and that has never changed from its foundation. Um, and uh, under the under the Mayo family, um, the second element of this, and it, it, it there was a, a quote that I came across from from Will Mayo, one of the, the 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 brothers who kind of drove the development of Mayo Clinic. And back in 1910, he he told a bunch of students, the best interest of the patient is the only interest to be considered. And in order that the sick may have the benefit of advancing knowledge, union of forces is necessary. In other words. If we've got to kind of serve the patient in the best way possible, we've got to work together, not in isolation. And and medicine, for whatever reason, um, does seem to promote a, a kind of a level of of isolation work or kind of a kind of culture of the expert at the heart of it, um, which doesn't necessarily always um, mean that they, they work in a collaborative fashion. Um, so the Mayo brothers, for example, kind of set up um, uh, open visits to, the, to when they were performing surgery so that kind of visiting physicians could come, learn what, what they're doing. They would kind of sit down in the evening and discuss the cases that they and the operations that they, they observed during the day. 
Um, and they used to do a lot of um, kind of going out and, and visiting other surgeons and physicians as well. And, and, and they, they always had this philosophy that, that no single physician can be the font of all knowledge about every, absolutely everything. The field of medicine is so complex and so difficult that we've actually got to work closely together in order to deliver kind of best possible outcomes for our patients. And so that, that, that culture of collaborative medicine, um, for me, is, is absolutely at the heart of what Mayo, what, what really makes Mayo tick. And when you combine that with the insight around patient need trumps everything else, mm -hmm. I think that's, they're, the, they're the two anchor points of culture that just never change. Right. And, you know, kind of final point on, on Mayo before we wrap up, you know, the, I, I know it's, you know, it's a sincere goal on their part. Uh, Cleveland Clinic um, has a similar statement around the needs of the patient coming first. But um, in, in a way, it kind of gives you pause when healthcare organizations have recently started bragging about patient-centered care. Like, well, what, 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 what else could it be? Uh, yeah, exactly. And so the difference for me in, in when I see and look at Mayo in detail is that 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 is just a statement of what they actually do, as opposed to uh, you know some sort of marketing slogan that they use. It's 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 rooted in the philosophy when when Mayo was set up. You know, Mayo in 1907 introduced the single patient record and probably had about nearly a hundred year jump on on kind of standard best practice across uh, modern healthcare. Um, organizations now so you know they, they 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 put in place the single patient record precisely because it was at the heart of being able to service the patient in the best way possible if we have a single patient record that contains all the data on, on a on a patient then it facilitates collaboration and 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 the input of all the different people that need to go and serve that that patient um, and, and they're taking that to the next level now. They've got a, a, a massive project that they're investing on to kind of take that to, to a higher level. But it also, it's reflected in, in the kind of decision-making structures. It's reflected in how, for example, doctors are paid. So, so doctors at Mayo are on a salary. They're not on a kind of pay-for-performance basis, if, if, mm -hmm. if you want to put it in that crude terms. Or pay-for-activity sometimes. On, on yeah. a productivity model, yeah, yeah. which most healthcare systems are based around. So the more patients I have, the more money I make. Um, and in, in Mayo, that's not the case. The, 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 the Mayo physicians and doctors are on a salary. Now it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a good salary, um, but it avoids um, any individual doctor mining a patient base or not inviting other experts to help in the care of a patient. And in fact, it, it, it also avoids the notion of any one doctor owning the patient. The Mayo Clinic owned the patient. Um, the, the patient is a patient of the Mayo Clinic, not any individual doctor within the clinic. Um, and so it kind of really does help reinforce that collaborative culture that, for me, delivers the, the kind of standards and outcomes that, that you get. And the other thing it does is help drive quality because when you have an open culture open collaborative culture like that there's a level of transparency around your work which means that all the other doctors and 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 uh, other health experts that are that are uh, working with that patient will see your work as well and so that is a kind of a, another kind of sort of 
driver of quality standards um, because it becomes very apparent if you're not kind of doing quality work for your patient, um, that becomes very obvious to your colleagues very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that whole collaborative medicine approach combined with a real commitment to patient need being at the heart um, and, and all the structures, processes, systems, everything aligned uh, around that, I think is what makes, for me, Mayo unique in healthcare. Yeah, and it's funny, you, know, you mentioned the, the single patient record um, or the patient-focused record. Um, even back in the days of paper charts before electronic medical records, we take it so for granted now that information and doctor's notes are organized by the patient. But before that, um, when you look at the history, doctors kept basically just a logbook of doctor-focused activity, of what the doctor was doing, combining information and notes about multiple patients. So it's um, kind of an early example of of people realizing instead of being structured around the doctors, we should be structured around patients. Precisely. So, so if you if you think back in the context of our, our model as well, you know, the Mayo is a good example of that in practice, where they've decided the ways in which the, the, the plan elements, if you like, for how, how Mayo is going to be different and be better. And they've aligned the cultural and the process aspects of how they work together to make sure to deliver that advantage. Yeah. Well, good. Well, um, Brian and James, thank you for um, spending some time talking today about your uh, book, Powerhouse Insider Accounts into the World's Top High Performance Organizations. Uh, It's available on Amazon, um, not just in the U.S., but I'm sure other markets. But what what do you recommend? uh, Where can people learn more about the book, uh, connect with you? Uh, online so if you go to we have a, a website set up for, around the book it's called www.theperformancepowerhouse.com uh, so if you go on there you'll see some details about the book you'll see the other organizations that are featured within the book um, we regularly post kind of some articles and kind of blog pieces related to the book and some of our research thinking on there, so it's a good site for people to go, and and we would strongly encourage people who are interested to get in touch with us and connect, because uh, um, and and kind of join in our conversation around uh, high performance. Yeah, so yeah, I so see the website here. People can download uh, a sample uh, from the book. Um, it's available as a, a paperback and uh, a Kindle book. So I encourage people to go check out the website, um, check out the book. I think especially for people who have taken real deep dives into Toyota, in my, uh, I think it would be interesting and, and helpful to take, uh, take a step back and um, see uh, a number of lessons from different types of high performance organizations. So um, yeah, again, the authors and our guests today have been Brian McNeese and James Bowen. Um, thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. Our pleasure, Mark. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.